one of these days, I'm going to destroy that television with an ax. I was around six years old when I first heard my mother say those words. But of course, I didn't believe her. Who would, right? I mean, that's just the kind of thing that uh, tired moms with a bunch of kids sometimes say. Until one fateful day. My mom wasn't feeling well. I can't remember all the details, but she was probably recovering from one of her 11 pregnancies. It's a true story. Whatever was going on, she was napping, and she had told me and my siblings that we needed to do our chores before we watched any TV. But she was sleeping. Who would know? And so we watched Looney Tunes until my mom woke up and lectured us for disobeying. But then she went back to her room. And so we turned on Looney Tunes again. This happened several times until finally my mom caught us watching Looney Tunes and silently went into the garage grabbed my dad's hatchet and destroyed the television with an axe. I learned two really important lessons that day. Number one, never underestimate the temper of an Irish-blooded, red-headed, postpartum woman. Number two, even in the best moms, patience doesn't last forever. What about God? The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger. You read that in Nahum chapter 1 this morning. The Bible tells us he is long-suffering. He's steadfast and patient. If we took time here this morning, most of us could tell personal stories about how God has been patient with each one of us. But we also see many examples in Scripture where God's patience seems to wear thin, where we read about his wrath against sin. In fact, we, we see this over and over again in the Minor Prophets as we've studied these 12 books of Scripture. So here's the question I want us to ask this morning. Will God's patience last forever? I think few books of the Bible answer this question better than the book of Nahum. So if you're not there, grab your Bible and go to Nahum chapter 1. If I were to say the word Nineveh to you, what book of the Bible immediately comes to mind? Jonah. The book of Jonah. We all associate the city of Nineveh with the book of Jonah. But did you know there are actually two books of the Bible about the city of Nineveh? The first is, of course, the book of Jonah. The second is the book we're going to study this morning, the book of Nahum. It's kind of like a sequel to the book of Jonah. They're both about the city of Nineveh. Both books, they're actually the only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question. And yet, the end for Nineveh in the sequel 
is a lot worse than the end of the book of Jonah. About 120 years after the prophet Jonah preached against Nineveh, the prophet Nahum is preaching against Nineveh. But unlike the story of Jonah, this time Nineveh doesn't repent. This time Nineveh isn't rescued. So as we study this book of the Bible together this morning, we're going to find an answer to our question, will God's patience last forever? And if I could put it to you like this, I would say that God's patience is perfect, but it's not permanent. God's patience is lasting, but it's not everlasting. God's patience has an expiration date. To show that to you this morning, we need to an answer three questions about the book of Nahum and the story that it tells us. First question is, what happened to Nineveh? What happened to Nineveh? If you look in your Bibles at Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, it begins an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Elkosh was some podunk town somewhere in Israel. Maybe not unlike the city of Pocosin. And Nineveh was this massive city. Nineveh uh, was the capital city of Assyria. 120 years before Nahum prophesies, Jonah 4.11 tells us that 120,000 people lived in this city that didn't know their right hand from their left. Historians believe that in these days, Nineveh was actually the, the largest city in the world. So think about somebody from Pocosin going to the largest city in the world and saying, you're going to fall. It's about what's happening in the book of Nahum. It was a marvelous city. During the reign of King Sennacherib, the, the city was transformed with new temples, roads, avenues, bridges, canals, and parks. They had the, the world's first aqueduct to, to uh, water what was kind of a precursor to the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. This was a majestic city. All of the pleasures of city life were available in Nineveh. It was a well-fortified city. One Bible teacher says Nineveh was an almost impregnable fortress. Forts guarded the approaches to the city. It was surrounded by a system of, of moats and canals and the mighty Tigris River. This was a city that one historian said Nineveh could never be overthrown unless the Tigris itself declared war on the city. This was a massive, majestic, impregnable, well-fortified city. And it was a city that once repented. In 760 BC, Jonah, the prophet, against his own desires and will, eventually arrives in Nineveh and preaches, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 tells us that the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They, they repented. They, they, they fasted and wore sackcloth and ashes. And throughout the city, there was this period of repentance and mourning. And Jonah looks for fireworks. He looks for wrath. He looks for judgment. And it doesn't come. But even though the repentance in Nineveh was legitimate, it was not lasting. One generation later, the Assyrian people are back to their old ways. In 740 BC, uh, some northern tribes were exiled by Assyria. You can read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Isn't it interesting, just, four, uh, just uh, 20 years later, the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian people are back to their old, violent, wicked ways. Can I, can I just stop for a second, brother, sister, friend, and challenge you? It only takes one generation for people to turn their backs on God. Do not assume that the faith that is so strongly in your life, dear Christian, will remain in your children or your grandchildren or the next generation behind you, dear saint. If we do not deliberately and intentionally invest that faith in the next generation, it will quickly die. It happened in Nineveh, and it can happen here. In 722 B.C., the entire northern kingdom, what's sometimes we've seen is called Israel or Samaria. This is the, the, the top ten tribes in the north. They fall to none other than the Assyrian army. God, in his wisdom, chooses to use the Assyrians like a tool, like an axe in his hand, to, to execute justice and discipline on his own sinning people in the northern kingdom. But Nineveh and the Assyrians become proud of the success that God providentially gives them. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. You see, Assyria, the Ninevites, they're a tool in the hand of a mighty God. But he says, woe to them. He said, against a godless nation, he's talking about the northern kingdom, against the godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. God gives the Assyrian army permission to defeat the northern kingdom and they say, we want more, like an axe turning itself against the very one holding its handle. So too was the Assyrian army and the Ninevite people. And so in 701 BC, Assyria tries to destroy the southern kingdom, but God protects his people. This is such an important story that the Bible records this story in three different books and it's, and it's contained in five different chapters. One place you can look is 2 Chronicles 32. You can read there about the miraculous defeat of the Assyrians in 701 BC. It slowed them down for a while, but we know from history that they did not stop their violent, oppressive, unjust ways. We know from history that around 663 B.C., Assyria conquers the city of Thebes in Egypt. 
archaeological discoveries in Nineveh have discovered a, a massive library with over 30,000 tablets and fragments that give us a, a wealth of historical knowledge about Assyria and Nineveh. You, you can actually see these in the British Museum. All these cuneiform tablets that have been discovered in excavations of the city of Nineveh. And one of those we learn from King Ashurbanipal himself, that the greatest king of the Assyrian Empire, he wrote this about the destruction of the mighty city of Thebes. This city, he says, the whole of it, I conquered it with the help of Asher and Ishtar. Those are two of the Assyrian gods. I have lifted my spear and shown my power with full hands filled with plunder. I have returned to Nineveh in good health. Nahum writes about the destruction of Thebes by the Ninevites in Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. It's quite graphic, actually, what they did when they conquered the city of Thebes. But over the next 25 years, Nineveh enjoyed unrivaled strength. Assyrians, at this point, are the world's greatest superpower. No one can stand against them. The city of Nineveh is massive and unparalleled in its might and majesty. And right around that time, around 639 BC, at the peak of Assyrian and Ninevite strength, Nahum, a podunk prophet from a podunk town, prophesies Nineveh will fall. And in the book of Nahum, we notice two very specific prophecies about the destruction of the city of Nineveh. Number one, God promises to destroy Nineveh with a flood. So look at chapter one, verse eight. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Or look at chapter two, verse six. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Nineveh will be destroyed, Nahum prophesies, with a flood. Nahum also prophesies that Nineveh will not rise again. There will be no resurrection for the city of Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says there will be a complete end. Verse 9, God will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Chapter 1, verse 14, no more shall your name be perpetuated Chapter 1, verse 15, Nineveh will be utterly cut off. Chapter 2, verse 13, the voice of Nineveh's messengers shall no longer be heard. I want you to understand something, brother, sister, friend. God's prophecies against the city of Nineveh are very unlike his warnings of coming judgment that we've read in other books of Scripture. When God warns his people, in the north or the south, judgment is coming. We have every single time seen God plead with him, come back to me, repent, and I will relent. There is no such language in the book of Nahum for the city of Nineveh. There is no promise of restoration. God's patience with the Ninevite people has run out. In 612 B.C., Nineveh is completely destroyed by Babylon. And we know from history and archaeological records that Nahum's two prophecies about the destruction of Nineveh happened exactly as he said. 
At least one ancient historian records that, that Nineveh was under siege by the Babylonians when the Tigris River rose up and flooded, allowing Babylon to breach the walls. Excavations of the city of Nineveh uh, have discovered that about 1,200 feet of the city's walls were missing on the side of the Tigris River. Why? Because the city was destroyed by a flood. And the utter destruction of the city of Nineveh, prophesied by Nahum, absolutely came true. The, the former president of the British School of Archaeology and a renowned expert in Middle Eastern history wrote this, 14 years after the death of Ashurbanipal, Nineveh suffered a defeat from which it never recovered. This is not a Bible scholar, by the way. This is a Middle Eastern scholar, archaeologist. He says, extensive traces of ash representing the sack of the city have been found in many parts of the Acropolis. After 612 BC, the city ceased to be important. One commentator writes, the great buildings of Egypt, Babylon, Greece, and Rome remain. Many of their greatest cities still exist. Not so with Assyria. The destruction of Assyria was so complete that until a British archaeologist named Austin Henry Layard discovered the buried remains of Nineveh in 1845, much of the world considered the Bible's accounts about the, the greatness of Assyria to be exaggerated. Before then, before 1845, the location of what had been the city of Nineveh was a mystery. God did indeed root out their cities so that the memory of them faded. And in 605 BC, the Assyrian Empire was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, I, I want to take it just a moment to say something to you, brother, sister, friend. The Word of God is a historical book. Everything I've just told you, you can go to Wikipedia and read it. What happened to Ashurbanipal, what happened to Nineveh, the discoveries there, it's absolutely historical. This is not just some sort of ancient myth. You can go to the, the British Museum in London and you can see evidence of the city of Nineveh, of their greatness, of what Ashurbanipal wrote. You can read about their collapse, about their utter and complete collapse. This book is rooted in history. It's true when it comes to things like the fall of Nineveh. It's absolutely true when it comes to things like a man from Bethlehem dying on a public cross outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is a historical book. These aren't myths and fables. This is true. But here's a lesson we ought to learn from the destruction of Nineveh. God's patience isn't permanent. It's perfect. It's not permanent. You might ask yourself, why would God destroy Nineveh? Go to Nahum chapter 3. And with God's help, I'll show you. Nahum chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip 
and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. The same two sins that God spoke against his people in the book of Micah, injustice and idolatry, were the two great sins of the people of Nineveh. They were a violent, unjust, cruel, and wicked people. You see the violence in what we just read. Uh, one commentator writes, of all the oppressive imperial powers that have stained the pages of human history from the past to the present, Assyria claims a place of preeminence among evil nations. It was a nation with a long history, but during the first millennium BC, it embarked upon a path of imperial expansion, which knew no limitations of human decency and kindness. If you can stomach it, Go to Google and read some of the war accounts of the Assyrian people, Ashurbanipal, Sennacherib, and others. What they did to those they captured. Another teacher said the Assyrians were perhaps the most brutal and cruel society in history. One preacher said the Assyrians were what Joseph Stalin aspired to be. They're a violent, unjust, murderous, bloodthirsty people. They're also idolatrous. In verse 4 of Nahum chapter 3, God depicts the Ninevite people like, like a pimp, capturing and trafficking nations, enslaving them in spiritual adultery, deceiving them, betraying them, and, and, and it's all through the worship of their pagan gods. If you, if you learn anything about God and the minor prophets so far, you know that he hates injustice and he hates idolatry. By the way, we talk a lot about tolerance in our culture today. Listen, let me, I want you to hear me very clearly. God is not tolerant of evil. He doesn't tolerate injustice. He doesn't tolerate idolatry. He doesn't tolerate it. He will judge it, execute justice on it. So notice what he says in Nahum chapter 3, verse 5, in a very troubling passage. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from what you say, or shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? What in the world is God saying? God is saying, Nineveh looks beautiful on the outside. Looks strong and mighty and filled with glory. God is saying, I am going to expose the wickedness and the filth underneath. I am going to let the nations see what she's really like. And it's not pretty. 
No one, no one want anything to do with the evils of this city when they see them in the light and they see who they really are. Now, I want, I want to bring this home for just a second. Here's the thing. God will do the same thing for every wicked nation. You read the book of Revelation, Babylon the Great. It's a lot like the imagery we see here in the book of Nahum. God promises no matter how pretty it looks and strong it appears to be and fancy and pleasurable it is, no matter how good life is there, there will come a day when God will lift up the curtain and say, look, and we will see the evils of the nations and none will want any part of that. We should be grateful for the many ways in which America is different from ancient Assyria. But we should shudder for the ways in which we are similar. By the way, dear brother, sister, friend, the day is coming when God will expose everything that's ever been done under cover of darkness. Not just the sins of nations, but the sins of their citizens, your sins and mine. Will God's patience last forever? No. His patience has an expiration date. There's a second question we need to ask this morning from the book of Nahum, and that is what happened to God's people? What happened to God's people when we talk about God's patience having an expiration date, perhaps that feels scary to you. But, but I want you to listen to me very carefully. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, God's temporary patience should be a comfort to you. Should be a comfort to you. You say, why? Well, imagine a doctor a doctor who has a cancer, a cancer patient undergoing chemotherapy. The doctor is willing to, to wait. He's patient. He's willing to wait until the treatments achieve their desired effect. But will he leave that patient in, in treatment long after their, their cancer is gone? No. He would not do that. He would not subject them to that because his patience has an expiration date. There's an end. The doctor, the good doctor, the loving doctor will subject a patient to pain for a season, but not forever. So too with God. Like a surgeon, he'll slowly and carefully cut the cancer of sin out of the hearts of his people. He'll discipline them for their good. He'll ordain pain and suffering. He'll harm, but only in order to heal. But he won't do any of it forever. God's patience isn't permanent. There's coming a day, brother, sister, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, there is coming a day where you'll never have to say, how long, O oh Lord, again? That's good news. That is good news. I want you to notice in the book of Nahum that God promises relief for his people. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. 
Thus says the Lord, though they, that's talking about the Assyrians, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. We sang earlier about God breaking off the chains. If God's going to break away the chains that are holding captive his people, he has to deal with their captors, right? So dear brother, sister, if you belong to Jesus, God's perfect but not permanent patience is a glorious good thing. He will not subject you to greater harm than is necessary. He will not leave you in pain forever. 53 years after Nahum prophesied, the Assyrian army, the entire empire has been destroyed. The Babylonian army is now the new world superpower. They come in to Judah. They sack Jerusalem. Jeremiah writes his book, Lamentations. We studied that last year. And in that book, after the destruction of Jerusalem, Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah the prophet writes that the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Yes, brother, sister, God sometimes does cause affliction and pain in the life of his people, but he will not do so forever. And God cannot deliver his people without destroying those who are harming them. The doctor that's treating cancer and the body of his patient cannot love the patient and the cancer at the same time, can he? If he's going to save the patient, he must hate and despise and cut out the cancer. So too with God. He pours out wrath on Nineveh and the Assyrians, eventually on Babylon, eventually when Christ returns on the great harlot Babylon the Great, every evil empire. He pours out his wrath so that he can deliver his people. Nahum chapter 3 verse 19 tells us about the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrians. And God says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And perhaps you're asking as you're listening to this, what about the innocent Assyrians? What about them? Surely everyone in Nineveh wasn't this bad. Did God wipe out every Assyrian? Did none survive? If you, if you read carefully in the book of Nahum, you'll notice different groups of people, like slave girls in chapter 2, troops in chapter 3, and merchants, and uh, nobles, and princes, and shepherds. Some of them run away, the text tells us. Many of them are just mourning. It seems that although Assyria as an empire is destroyed, not necessarily every Assyrian is destroyed. In fact, I would suggest to you that there will come a day when you will sing the praises of the lion and the lamb alongside Assyrians. 
Listen to another prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 19, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. There is coming a day when people from every tribe and tongue will bow down together before Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will be with him forever. How in the world is that going to happen? Remember that horrible passage in Nahum 3, verses 5 and 6? It's frightening and it's horrible. In fact, it's so disturbing of a passage that some have said of the book of Nahum, it has no place in the Christian church. Some have commented on its beautiful poetry and said the book of Nahum is a bad book, but it's beautiful. I would suggest to you that that prophecy was it's originally fulfilled when Nineveh was destroyed but ultimately fulfilled not in Nineveh but on a hill called Calvary because there the wrath that Nineveh endured was ultimately and more fully endured by Jesus himself. The father was against him. He was stripped naked. He was despised and mocked. He was made a spectacle and treated with contempt. Why? So he could die in your place. He endured all of the wrath of God that Nineveh deserved and we deserve. And he drank it all for you. Do you see why in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying out, sweating drops of blood, Father, please let this cup pass from me. Who would want to endure Nahum 3, 5, and 6? And that's what Christ has done for you. If you believe, if your faith is in him, not in your works, but in the work of Christ, then what he did on the cross for you. If your faith is located there, if you turn from your sins that cut you off from Christ, if your faith is there, if you believe you are grafted into the people of God alongside Assyrians and Egyptians and Israelites and people from every tribe and tongue, will God's patience last forever? It has an expiration date. I think we need to ask one final question this morning. And that is, what will happen to you? What will happen to you? It's easy to take a book like Nahum and say, this isn't really relevant for me. After all, what have the Assyrians done to you lately? Probably not very much. And yet, the Bible is clear that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, including the book of Nahum. So how do we apply the message of this somewhat troubling book to our troubled lives? Let me suggest four applications before we take the bread and cup together. Number one, don't assume you have more time.
could be that there are several in this room who plan to get right with God tomorrow, next week, later. Maybe there's young people in this room and you say, well, my parents strayed for a long time and then God brought them back, so I'm just gonna do that too. I'm gonna live for me right now. I'm gonna sow my wild oats. I'm gonna have fun now and do what I wanna do now and later in life, I'll deal with following Jesus. I've got time after all. Dear friend, do not assume that you have more time. I do not say that to scare you. Listen, if you know anything about me, my heart is not to intimidate with cheap emotional manipulation. But this is true. You cannot, you dare not assume that you have another instant, dear friend. In the Bible, we, graciously, we have this story about a deathbed conversion, this thief on the cross who's hanging there beside Jesus, remember? And in his last breath, he looks to Christ and he's saved. But one Bible teacher said, there's only one story like this in Scripture. or There, there, there is one so that none will despair, but there's only one so that none will presume. Do not presume that you can take care of it later. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, the path forward for you to be restored to a right relationship with God is very simple. It's hard, but it is simple. Simply turn from your sin. Turn from, from your life lived about you where you're the king and you're on the throne and you do what you want and trust in Christ and what he has done, and choose to follow him in obedience. Not clean up and then do that, but come to him now, right now, while there's time, and say, please be merciful to me, a sinner. You can do that today, dear friend. I plead with you to do that today. In a few moments, when we bow our heads to pray and prepare for communion. There'll be some folks over here to my right at the white flag that are happy to talk with you, pray with you, if you choose to do that. But you can do it right where you are. Cry out to him and ask him to be merciful to you. Don't presume that you have more time. Nahum 1 verse 3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You must trust in Jesus who bore the wrath of God in your place. That's the first point of application. The remaining three are for followers of Jesus in this room. Most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. So how do you reply? How do you respond to the book of Nahum? Application number two, don't fear those who threaten you. Don't fear those who threaten you. One of my favorite scenes in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe is in the very first Avengers film. If you've seen it, remember Loki forces this crowd in Stuttgart, Germany to kneel before him. And he says, he smiles at the crowd and he says, is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy and a mad scramble for power. 
for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. And then in the crowd, an old German man slowly rises to his feet and he says, not to men like you. To which Loki smilingly responds, there are no men like me. And that German man gets the last word and says, there are always men like you. Can I tell you something, brother, sister, follower of Jesus in this room, there will always be men like him. There will always be world powers and rulers that hate the people of God, whether it's Ashurbanipal or Hitler or Kim Jong-un, there will always be evil in this world until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns to make everything sad come untrue. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid and don't kneel. Don't kneel to them. Kneel to Christ and him alone. Nahum 1 verse 7 says, the Lord is good, a stronghold, a safe place in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Third application, don't avenge those who harm you. Don't avenge those who harm you. On October 2nd, 2019, a young African-American man named Brant Jean looked into the eyes of Amber Geiger, a white police officer who had just been convicted of killing his brother. And he got to give a, a victim impact statement. And what he said shocked the world. He said, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. The prosecution had asked for 28 years, the age his brother would have been had the officer not shot him. Instead, Brandt told Geiger that he wanted what both of them, his brother, would have wanted. And listen to what he said. He said, I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that my brother would want for you. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad for you. And then he stunned the judge and the entire courtroom and the world when he said, can I give her a hug, please? Please. Most of us will never face the murder of a family member in court. But you will face hundreds, thousands of petty annoyances and hurts and maybe not so petty annoyances and hurts every single day. Will you choose to forgive or seek to avenge? Notice what God says about himself in Nahum 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Translation, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't hold on to it. Forgive. Forgive. Finally, don't hide the good news. After the infamous axe adventure, the Butoh family went several years without a television until another fateful day. My dad had just gotten a new job with a significant pay raise, so my parents went out on a date to celebrate, and they returned with wonderful plunder. They came with one of those massive 200-pound rear projection TVs. You know what I'm talking about? Like hardcore 90s, right? One of those huge TVs. 
this new revolutionary device called a DVD player. And these little round things that had movies on them and you didn't have to rewind them. It's incredible. And a subscription to direct TV. This was a day of good news. The, the Butoh children were finally able to experience television again. I remember telling all my friends at church, we've got a TV, we've got a DVD player, our TV is huge. I couldn't keep my mouth shut about it if I wanted to. All of us can think about wonderful things that have happened in our lives that we can't keep quiet about. And the book of Nahum points to the best news. Look at Nahum chapter one, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Nahum is talking about a messenger that would go and proclaim to God's people, you've been delivered. Listen, we are God's messengers who can proclaim to the world we have been delivered from a fate far worse than Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. Our greatest enemy is no one in this world. Our greatest enemy, apart from Christ, is God himself. We are enemies by nature. And yet God himself took this incredible, amazing step to come here and to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And now no enemy matters. You know Christ. If you're a Christian, you know that good news. But because God's patience has an expiration date, we shouldn't wait to tell other people. Carl Henry once said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate this good news by taking communion, remembering Jesus' death in our place. But first, I want us to take a few moments to examine ourselves in pray. So I'm gonna ask you, if you would, to bow your heads with me as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. To bow your heads with me and prepare for some time of prayer, self-reflection. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I would ask you not to presume Today, right here, right where you are, right now, call out to Jesus and be saved. Turn to him, trust him. You can head to the white flag if you choose. You can get up right now if you'd like to and talk to someone. They'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you, pull you aside in another room if you'd prefer that, to have a little privacy and, and talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus. Don't wait, don't assume you have more time. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, are you living in fear of those who threaten you? Are you holding on to bitterness, attempting to avenge those who's, who've hurt you? Are you hiding the good news that God has called you to share? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, confess it. Tell the Lord, he knows already. Tell him you're sorry. Ask for his forgiveness and receive it as a gift, then ask for his help to be faithful. I'll give you a few moments to pray where you are in silence before we take the Lord's Supper together.